You're listening to Marcus Sahaba Online Radio Podcast. Me too. I'm very fond of this program called Legal Talk. And Alhamdulillah, on Legal Talk this evening, we are joined by our very own. He's been, I won't say absent without leave, but he's been traveling around and he's involved in some litigation cases and so forth. Yes, our very own uh, Ashraf Isuf, uh, senior attorney Ashraf, um, Ashraf Isuf ha- has joined us. And uh, let me welcome you and Ashraf, our very hearty. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And tell me how are you doing this fine, a beautiful evening, Ashraf. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Alhamdulillah. Shafat, I'm very well, thank you. And I hope you are well as well. Uh, I know we haven't spoken in a while. Uh, and as you mentioned, there's been some traveling and matters that have kept us busy in court. But Alhamdulillah, we're back now. And we hope that uh, our listeners are also well. And uh, as you say, it's a beautiful evening. Here we are together with the grace of Allah. We are able to get together and exchange a few ideas and thoughts. Ashraf, uh, you know, with all your traveling and so forth, uh, uh, you have you been out of the country or you've been uh, uh, in in uh, nationally, you know, moving mm-hmm. around and so forth? No, no, it's it's just local travel. Uh, I had to go to Cape Town, and um, apart from that, uh, I had uh, quite a few high court matters all at the same time, so that has kept me busy. And uh, yeah, Alhamdulillah, it's all turned out well, and we are here together. But all's good. You know, Alhamdulillah, good at traveling around the country, but here you look at uh, Cape Town, you look at Johannesburg, you're looking, you know, around a lot of kidnappings that are taking place. Uh, a lot of our, uh, you know, brothers are being uh, killed, uh, you know, sad indeed, and uh, robberies and so forth. Uh, you know, the situation is very volatile. And I think, you know, everyone uh, are paranoid about this, especially this kidnapping that's taking place. Why is there a spike in kidnapping, uh, Ashraf? So to me, Shafat, it looks like it's uh, easy money, right? So the moment anyone displays that they have any degree of success, and especially if it's a cash business, right, then automatically you become a target. I mean, you could be anywhere. And as you can see, no one is spared. A few weeks ago, a Bangladeshi businessman was captured, and he was begging for his life, you know. And he was saying, give the money, give the money. He's dead already. I mean, he looked very, very badly beaten up. So I think there's a thread there of successful business people in a cash business. And unfortunately, we don't know who's next. It does have an impact uh, on people, you know, that are just um, ordinary people making an ordinary living, um, some successful you know, others doing other things. But there's obviously some kind of, um, you know, some kind of intelligence, right? Because I, I, not not just everyone and anyone is kidnapped. If you see, um, it appears to be targeted at business people. So basically, no one's going to kidnap a lawyer because they don't have money or an accountant. Um, But you can see that the perpetrators obviously have a lot of information and they use that information. Now, I don't know if this is true or not. The other theory was that uh, a lot of these foreign business people 
were known to be transferring money abroad, uh, not through the banking system. Now, if that's true, then somebody in that circle knows about it because often you would find that some of these um, hostage, no, not hostage, ransom demands are paid abroad. But we don't know. It's all speculation, uh, Shafat. You know, um, unfortunately, the kids are also becoming targets now, which is very, very worrying. Whatever the parents or the fathers might be doing, I know here in Gauteng we had at least two or three children that were kidnapped. Oh, I forget to mention the multi children of Polakwane, and that, that was four of them. So you can see that, you know, it's, it's like overflowing onto the families and children. And I, t I tell you, the next they're going to be going for the women. And unfortunately, uh, you would find uh, some, you know, very prominent families uh, where the, 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 the women are given very fancy cars and, and jewelry. And, you know, they become targets, Shafat, whether it's an organized crime or just a random crime. Unfortunately, that's what happens. We hope that um, our listeners are able to take note of some of these dangers and, uh, you know, try and take care not to be, uh, you know, not to become targets or identified as people with money. Because if they're going for children, nothing stops them from going for our wives and daughters in the future, indeed our sons even, because they know where, where it hits, you see. But let's hope and pray that we don't become victims. And we also pray for the victims that are, that are trapped up in or caught up in all of these things, Shafat. You know, Ashraf, you make a point, and in most cases, they, uh, I think the, the statistics uh, are something like uh, a 70% of the people or 75% involved are mostly foreigners on foreigners. And as you made it, uh, you made a point clear that, that they know the movement of money and uh, most of the, the flow is of uh, cash money, it's cash business. And, uh, you know, there's a syndicate or uh, maybe there's a cartel. Uh, but, you know, people from uh, the same country, I mean, the foreign nationals in our country, but going for each other. I mean, uh, that's unheard of, Ashraf. What, uh, is, is, is this a common trait in the subcontinent? So, Shafat, I mean, let's be fair. I don't think it's in the subcontinent only. I mean, uh, it's well known that the, um, you know, areas of uh, crime are controlled by international cartels be it Russian or Italian or whatever cartel there is. Um, so I guess community on community violence and, and hostage taking is common. Um, I mean, there was a time that I was in Yemen and I wanted to go uh, to Hadramaut. But uh, I mean, there was a danger of getting kidnapped. So Kidnapping and uh, hostage taking and, uh, you know, all of this is really commonplace around the world. I guess in our limited scope, we're exposed to it as a minority of a minority uh, in the southern tip of Africa and becomes more acute for us because there's overall crime. And then there's the specific crime where members of our community and uh, the foreigners themselves have been targeted. So 
I think syndicates cut across all lines, Shafat. But certainly we can see a trend emerging locally. And uh, we don't know. We don't know who the perpetrators are. There's been very few arrests. Yes, there's been a lot of releases. But I don't see the arrests. Uh, some say that this crime has, has come across the border from Mozambique, where, again, successful business people have been targeted. And that's resulted in them sending their wives and children out of the country to South Africa and Lisbon and other places so that they are at least safe. But by no means can I say uh, it's only from the subcontinent, Shafat. Point uh, taken, Ashraf. And as you said, you know, it was something that was uh, very ripe, uh, ripe in uh, Mozambique and so forth. And, uh, you know, looking at uh, a little bit of the paranoia of uh, uh, American, uh, you know, government telling us uh, that uh, there will be an imminent terrorist attack in Santon and all that. You know, remember before the World Cup, this was also a big, big mantra where the uh, FBI was warning us on uh, there'll be bombs thrown into the statement, uh, into the statement uh, stadium. But, uh, you know, Jacob Zuma and his uh, security said, no, no, there's no such thing. We had it under control and uh, it proved uh, that there was no such thing. Uh, the latest, uh, you know, paranoia coming through. What do you make of it, Ashraf? I really don't know, Shafat. I mean, sometimes I wonder about uh, these things, you know. Um, it could be the start of fake news. It's also, and this is a point I think we have to acknowledge, as uncomfortable as it is, if I say terrorist, what immediately flashes in your mind? Absolutely, you me... absolutely. ISIS crisis. Go ahead, Ashraf. So, so you see a picture of a man in a Muslim garb with a beard, right? I mean, when they say that, even people that are not involved in terrorism start feeling guilty. I live in a particular neighborhood and somebody posted that this thing yesterday. And I thought to myself, what is the value of this? I mean, because it suddenly starts making you feel like you belong to the people that terrorize people. And, and by, I mean, it's, it's amazing how this, I, I would say, silent uh, brainwashing has successfully implanted in our minds that the vision of the modern day terrorist is none other than a Muslim. It's unfortunate. I don't know if I'm generalizing, but but this is what is what seems to have happened. Now, when you start saying things like that, it automatically seems to bring the focus of the Muslim community into sharp focus, like all of us will be guilty. So, so we are guilty by association, simply because the picture has already been implanted that the terrorist is this man with the beard, the turban and a bomb. Now, whether this was credible or not, uh, we don't know because I think the warning said this weekend is when the attack was going to take place. Now, to my mind, if you have information like that, instead of scaring the public, why don't you tackle the terrorists? Why don't you arrest them? Why don't you take a preemptive, preemptive legal step against them? So to me, 
really it's upsetting when we get news like this floating around and suddenly you start feeling alienated. So I just don't know what to make of this. And I don't know who would be so, um, you know, who would, uh, you have to ask yourself a simple question when you get news like this. Who benefits from this? Who benefits from this digression of society's attention and interest? Who would benefit from putting the Muslims under pressure like this? I mean, one would, one would say they never said it was a Muslim, but I think I've already made my point that the subliminal association with the acts of terrorism today they've put at our feet. So, you know, they could say that not every Muslim is a terrorist, but every terrorist is a Muslim. I mean, it's as ridiculous as that. So I always ask who would benefit from this? Why would they say something like this? Why didn't they take uh, steps? If they had the information, surely they would know where it's coming from or how it's coming. And any uh, logical, rational, and reasonable response to something like that is to take legal steps. So that's where I can leave it, Shabbat, unfortunately. No, Alhamdulillah, you know, uh, you know, we have our legal men like yourself, and uh, maybe, you know, all have to be ready for this onslaught. And it seems as if uh, those are perpetrators who uh, did the 9-11, who did the Bali bombing, who did the 7-7 and so forth, they're at it again. But inshallah, you know, we know the ayat of the Quran where it says that truth shall prevail and falsehood uh, perish. Uh, moving on to our, to our topic uh, this evening, Ashraf, I'm really looking forward to that. I'm looking at your composite uh, very nicely uh, written there. It says, uh, Senior Attorney Ashraf Isup discusses the consequences of being illegally documenting, uh, documented and it's uh, frightening. And, you know, when we talk about this uh, terrorist and so forth, uh, when we talk about all these uh, uh, you know these these uh, false flag operations being perpetrated. Those guys don't they, they don't need documents. They they can land their plane wherever they want, and within split seconds they got weapons of mass destruction and they're doing things without being detected and so forth. It's very farcical indeed, Ashraf. But let's stick to our topic this evening and uh, talk about uh, you know uh, this uh, being uh, in a country and uh, the consequences of being illegally documented. What are the consequences, Ashraf? So, Shafat, um, let's start at the beginning, right? There, there are various kinds of illegal foreigners. There's just not one particular kind. So you have the first where I would say the guy or the person is completely without any papers. Here's a classical example. You know, we're reading about the Zamazamas these uh, illegal miners. So not only are they illegal foreigners, they're also illegal miners. So what is an illegal foreigner is one who is in the Republic against the Immigrations Act, who is, does, doesn't comply with that. So the Immigrations Act says every, every person or every foreigner must be in possession of a passport and a visa commensurate with his activities in the Republic. In the Republic. Alternatively, you have this mess of asylum seekers 
who also must be in possession of a permit in place of a passport, and that permit must be valid so that they are considered legal in the country. So the first category of illegal foreigners are those that have absolutely no paperwork and no record of them entering the Republic. And so we call them undocumented migrants. So that is the first category of illegal foreigners. Now, if you're undocumented and in the absence of a bona fide intention or an explanation for you not being documented, for example, you could have lost your passport with a legitimate visa, so you're undocumented, or your um, asylum seekers section 23 permit has not been renewed, so you have a document, but you're illegal, or you completely, completely without any form of documentation or identification. I would su suggest that that is our most, um, you know, the most dangerous class to be in because you're then subject to detention and deportation. Now, there is a case in the Constitutional Court that says no matter how long it took you, if you evidence an intention to have applied for asylum seekers permit, then you are entitled to approach the refugee reception officer and apply for that. So even if you're undocumented, you could possibly, if you're really genuinely fleeing some kind of um, internal or external aggression, or you know, there's four categories in terms of the Refugees Act, where you're fleeing some harm in your country or region, then you're entitled to do that. Otherwise, you are liable for arrest, detention, and deportation. Uh, and so, so that's the legal regime. Then you have people that are in the country with passports and for some or other reason either have not been able to renew their temporary residence visa. Alternatively, they've applied for renewal but not received it. Some of these cases go back a year. So you're in the country, you've applied, you've not received it. Now there, Home Affairs has given a concession, but and this is how the concession works. If you leave the country, and until March 2023, you will not be declared undesirable. So normally if you overstay your visa, when you're leaving the country, you attract a penalty of between 12 and 60 months. If you leave the country and you have a receipt and you, you travel overseas, then they won't slap you with this undesirable ban. Now, how it works is if you go to a European country or visa-free country, you can re-enter the Republic on that receipt and then get a stamp at the airport if you're visa-free. However, if you're a visa, if you need a visa to enter, like if you're from Pakistan, Palestine, uh, you know, other areas, then you have to apply for a visitor's visa to re-enter the Republic as a visitor while your application for status is being processed. 
So there you can see the dichotomy between visa-free countries, which generally are Eurocentric, and uh, visa countries that require visa to enter, which generally are uh, from certain parts of Africa and the developing world, usually known as the third world. So that does give rise to some concerns about how uh, your, you know, your your nationality is viewed by our government. And then you have people in the Republic who have fraudulent visas or fraudulent IDs or fraudulent, you know, their documents were obtained through fraud. So obviously they, they also considered illegal once they've been detected by an immigration officer or I see recently the ministers asked the police to also step in um, to, uh, to police the, the presence of foreigners. And now you're seeing this thing springing up all over uh, multi-sectoral operations, like home affairs will be there, SARS will be there, traffic will be there, police will be there at the roadblock or, or you know, random searches. So here, here in Gauteng, we're seeing increasing numbers of police activity where they cordon off an area and then they go and sweep through it. Um, I think recently the one report I read as I think there was something like uh, 60 or 80 foreigners that were detected and then arrested. And when I say foreigners, I mean now the illegal ones. Either their, their documents have expired or they have zero documentation. So, uh, sorry, uh, Shafat. All right, you can have it on hold. We'll let you take your call there, Ashraf. And uh, as Ashraf uh, makes a very valid point there indeed, uh, people, that, uh, you know, you find... Uh, that they uh, wait, they have uh, this type of. Uh, okay, man. I just re read about that uh, Hajat family. I was wondering, are they yeah, related yeah, to Farid? As you, you can hear how Ashraf uh, having a conversation oh, there. Alhamdulillah, you get that first hand. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, first hand experience uh, uh, what happens when you have a live interview and uh, when uh, someone calls uh, instead of uh, Ashraf a meeting the background but as uh, he says uh, that the law enforcement are definitely deciding uh, to get into it and to cordon off certain areas and where they make a clean sweep and uh, you know SARS is there uh, the uh, uh, what you call the uh, the Department of Home Affairs is there with SAPS and uh, uh, even uh, sometimes the army joining in and uh, getting into this situation where they clean a coma area and, you know, Allah forbid, if uh, they should come to a residential area where you as an individual have uh, or there's an undocumented uh, as a work of yours from out of the country and living in your backyard, what happens to you then? You become uh, Ashraf, you're back. Yeah, that's a very, very good uh, point that you've raised there. Mark for the interruption. No, no, go, go ahead, Ashraf. It, go it, ahead. it was, in fact, about uh, these three people that were killed, you know, here, um, in a, uh, uh, I don't know, robbery or something in Bromford. Yes. So I was just trying to find out if they were related to another friend. Anyway, uh, it appears not to be. So and the point that you've raised now is very, very important, Shafat, because the employer or not necessarily the employer, and yes, this is a real case scenario, it's not a stretch of the imagination, 
I was once in a seminar and uh, the home affairs representative was saying, let's say I'm uh, undocumented and I come to your premises and I've got nothing to do with you. Nothing, no link whatsoever. I'm undocumented. I'm found on your premises. The presumption is you take responsibility for me. So let's say I'm delivering some goods to you and I'm employing an undocumented migrant and uh, we then your premise is then raided and that that person is found with me on your premises. You're responsible for it. So you can see that there's wide reaching consequences for this. Now, it's not something to be just sniffed at. Directors have been summoned to home affairs. Some have been charged criminally because it amounts to aiding and abetting. And after three offenses, there's a prison sentence, Shabha. So it's quite serious. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, I think you raised a very good point about having undocumented migrants or employing them on a part-time or full-time basis, including your gardener who comes on the weekend, you know. Um, so I think the state has taken the view that they're cleaning up. The first such step was taken by not renewing the Zimbabwean exemption permit. Then the whole thing received uh, a boost when the Zamazamas uh, raped so many women on the, on the mines. Then the community and the police stepped up and, and now the operations are, are, are ongoing. I think just last week I heard of them raising, uh, raiding a Zamazama mine. What was frightening is the number of firearms that was there. I mean, those firearms, the Zamazamas are not using it on each other if they're underground. Those firearms must be used when they're on the surface. So you can see there's a great, great danger in having all these firearms lying around and all of these undocumented migrants. Now, by that, we also understand that when they enter the country illegally, Shafat, there's no record, there's no digital uh, evidence of the face of the person as well as the fingerprints. Now, you know, the state is attempting to up its game when it comes to obtaining of records, even from prisoners. So now when you're arrested, they take your DNA and you enter the DNA database. But can you imagine if you come into the country, you've never been detected, you commit a crime and you leave. Your DNA is not on the system. Your fingerprint is not on the system. There's no passport copy. So you can see how easy it is for that person to, to come and go and, and having committed serious crimes. Then you remember we were talking about um, people who are in the country in possession of fraudulent documents. So one of the ways that um, fraud will now be detected, especially in marriages, is that they will expect the husband and wife to give passport size photographs with the fingerprint. Uh, I must tell you, this is a suggestion that was made by us some time ago, maybe five, ten years ago, because of the prevalence of uh, uh, marriages of convenience. Uh, and the department wasn't able to distinguish a genuine marriage 
from a fraudulent marriage. So you might find sometime in the future, Shafat, you and your wife holding hands will have to go to home affairs and give a passport size photograph as well as a fingerprint just to re-verify the marriage details. And remember that if there's a divorce, the Department of Justice is separate from the Department of Home Affairs. And sometimes these records are not updated. And a lot of the times, the scenario is that a foreigner arrives in the country on day one. On day three, he just happens to fall in love. And that can happen. I'm not saying it doesn't. On day five, they get married in front of a marriage officer. On day six, they go to home affairs. And prior to the 2014 amendment of the Immigration Act, they could get a temporary residence visa under the category a company spouse. And then that had an, attend, uh, an attached condition that you must apply for PR or permanent residence within 90 days. So this is in terms of the old act. So you do that and voila, within 90 days, you're a permanent residence permit holder or you've applied and then you get it from the local office in 10 days and then you allowed a period of two years that time before some, it was always five years, but there was some kind of glitch and Home Affairs was pro pro processing citizenships within a period of two years. Now, what has all of this meant, Ishafat, is that there's literally tens of thousands of people that had benefited from that. I, I mean, I'm not joking when I tell you that by the time the minister closed down the one regional office in Johannesburg in 2004, on the 14th of December 2004, there were 10,000 applicants that had passed through that office. And now the department is rechecking all of this, is digitizing records, and has brought in a, a team to reevaluate all of these visas and permits from 2004. So there are lots and lots of efforts and cross checks to try and find and detect illegal foreigners that has obtained documentation uh, via marriages of convenience. And of course, the department knows the pattern because the moment you get your, your citizenship or your PR, then almost to the day of the three-year condition of having a good faith spousal relationship, you end up divorcing your South African spouse. Now, unfortunately, the South African spouse doesn't know that she was married in community property and that she was divorced. Because if she knew, then although it is a fraudulent marriage, she could make a claim for half of the man's estate, because usually these are traders and things. And then lo and behold, they, as soon as the divorce is finalized, the family from abroad comes to join them with their children and they start living here as a happy family until the foreign spouse now needs to renew that temporary residence visa. Then the department looks into it. And unfortunately, even for people that are genuinely married and did not take part in any fraudulent activity, Shafat, they fall prey to unsuspectingly 
being taken advantage of by illegal agents, registered or otherwise, then these agents, they go and procure fraudulent documents for a price. And unfortunately, foreigners don't know that they didn't have to go to an agent. And But in those days, let me be quite frank, home affairs was hell. You had to go into a regional office. You had to sit the whole day. There was queue jumping and all kinds of things going on. It's very, very frustrating. And imagine now you sitting there waiting to be called and then they close the office. Then you come the next day. So people in many, many ways were taken advantage of by unscrupulous agents. And then they find themselves in possession of an a fraudulent visa. So I hope we started our, uh, uh, by examining the different kinds of illegal foreigners. And I hope that now I've summed that up for you, Shifa. You know, uh, Ashraf, I've been uh, talking to a, a local councillor here in Durban. And uh, uh, firstly, he, he spoke about, uh, you know, there was a uh, robbery at one of the shops and it was owned by uh, the, the foreigners. I think it happened to be Bangladeshi nationals. And uh, unfortunately, one of them passed on. And he says, what happened that he had no papers at all? So, uh, you know, and they, uh, I think they wanted to send the body back to Bangladesh and so forth. And uh, this is what he told me. He said, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 the department said, oh, they told him, no, 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 this guy is uh, he's here illegally. He's got no, we, we cannot give you the body and we're going to do this and that uh, unless you... Uh, uh, the, the, the friends or the family members that are here uh, apply for a certain documentation known as, uh, you know, maybe a, a refugee. If you can pay for that status, then maybe we'll give you the body and you can send it back. Uh, any 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 truth in that, uh, Ashraf? Uh, no. uh, do they have to do that? I don't know. He, uh, no. uh, I mean, that no, was no. the story I got from him. Uh, talk no, to no, no. Uh, look, I mean, how can you apply for refugee status for a guy who's dead? I mean, it's not yeah, possible. Uh, uh, someone's taking him for a ride then, uh, there, Ashraf. This yeah, is it looks like, yeah, look, look, here's how it works, right? If you're illegal and you're undocumented, the department will ask you to nominate which country you come from. If you keep quiet and you say no country, they will take your fingerprints. Now, let me tell you something, Shabbat. From the time of the World Cup, there's a very sophisticated system all over the world that networks the security systems of every country in the database. And I can tell you, they'll tell you exactly where you came from. That's how powerful this network is. Where, what your real name is, because you're on a database of another government in another part of the world, unless those things were never taken. It gets a little bit more uh, sophisticated these days because you have a thing called a cell phone. The cell phone is a record-keeping device. No matter where you are, what you are, and, and you know, wh whatever you say, they can actually pinpoint where you were and, and uh, in what area you were and, and how you came to be in possession of that. Now, remember, there's also a thing called voice records. So when you type into Google with your voice, or indeed, even if you're speaking on the telephone, there's a record of your voice. They, they know how, who, you know, the voice is a unique thing. It's almost as unique as a fingerprint and an iris. You know, no two voices are the same, Shabbat. So what I'm suggesting is there's a whole lot of cross 
security networks for them to determine exactly who you are. Apart from that, here we know he's a Bangladeshi. They take his fingerprints, they go off to the Bangladesh embassy. They say, this is your national. Please make arrangements for his removal from the country. If you're alive, the Bangladeshi government will then give you a travel document. Obviously, if you're dead, they'll make some kind of arrangement for the family to be notified. They won't carry the cost of repatriation. A lot of foreigners are now looking at insurance for repatriation purposes. I was talking to somebody in the Jamaat that does the burials here, and they say a lot of the cases, uh, the people come up with this. Now, not to make light of this, but some of the Zimbabweans can't afford this repatriation, and many, many times they wrap the blankets, uh, the body up in a carpet, and they try and smuggle that across the border. The other day, the vehicle carrying the carpet and the body broke down. You can imagine what mayhem, you know, there was there, because uh, decomposition is almost immediate when the body, uh, you know, when you die. So it's, it's very, very hard. So I, I doubt very much that that was the advice given by Home Affairs. If anything, it was tongue in cheek. I mean, you can't apply for status if you did. Well, absolutely. So uh, maybe, yeah, yeah. I don't know what my poor friend was. Uh, was uh, he must have met one of them, you know, those guys that will take money out of uh, with anything. Yeah, yeah. Just sell anything to get the money, but it's sad indeed. And you know, you you talk about the spouse. Uh, you know, there, there's an, another scenario. And you know, we we, we get uh, we be surrounded by these people, and then you get uh, this one individual, an undocumented, marries a uh, local. Uh, has a baby, uh, has businesses, but still is undocumented. What happens in that case, uh, Ashraf? Should he, I mean, because uh, you find the law enforcement, so, you know, these are people that are still that have compromised uh, the police force and uh, the judiciary, still coming to these guys and taking taxes. So you, in your opinion, you feel that uh, that news is uh, tightening now and uh, that will be something of the past very shortly, uh, Ashraf? So unfortunately now, Shafat, all of these things about anti-foreigners has also given rise to another kind of business. Uh, it's now well known and reported, especially by ground up, that uh, a lot of police are just taking money from foreigners and then releasing them. So it's become like a cash mm. cow, uh, you know, a new cash cow. So the question then is, at which point does it all catch up with people? So no doubt uh, we're moving towards a digital age and as time goes by, uh, things will change. Now, you remember during the pandemic, you had to go take your identity document and legal or otherwise, you receive the jab. So there's, there's, um, there, is, uh, every day there is now a trace of you on the system because they know if you took the jab or not. And... Uh, they have your details, they have your cell phone number because they will send you an SMS. So all of these things seem to be pointing towards a, an, a, 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 new, a new kind of regime that will rule over uh, human beings where you're not going to remain anonymous um, unless you're out of the system. And very few people can live out, out, outside the system. There are a few. Um, and uh, 
you know, I mean, I, I don't think you can completely get get off uh, because one way or the other you linked to the record keeping. Now, whether the state is efficient in execution of its mandate to arrest, uh, detain and, and deport foreigners is, is a matter to be seen. Um, according to the Minister of Home Affairs, Dr. Aaron Mazzaledi, if he needs to wreck Home Affairs down to the last screw and rebuild it up without uh, corrupt officials, that's what he's going to do. It's quite a funny anecdote there. So there were like 14 top officials charged with, uh, you know, participating in criminal activities over the years. And they brought an application or they threatened to bring an application to stop the investigation into what they were doing or what had what they had done. This is quite amazing um, to find something like that. So you're an accused in a matter and then you bring an application to say, no, no, stop the investigation. Don't investigate us. Uh, we, we might have made mistakes. So in the past, certainly the department was was very, very accessible to criminal syndicates. That's not to say it hasn't been. A few weeks ago, you heard of the Pakistani kingpin that was arrested because um, he facilitated a passport and then Lerato from Bangladesh was going back with his passport. And Home Affairs had a good laugh at the airport to say, oh, Lerato, you're a South African citizen. You're going to Bangladesh, eh? <laughs> And obviously, you then heard of uh, the sting operation here in Rudaput, where amazingly, the offices were open at night and South African citizens were selling their identities to foreigners so that they could obtain passports. So like, I'll go in and then I'll get a, uh, an amount of maybe 500 and the kingpin was charging 50,000. So I get an amount of 500 for helping Mr. X. So instead of my biometrics being captured under my name, Mr. X's face and his fingerprints appear in my stead. So I will never travel at all in my life. But Mr. X then assumes my identity and gets a passport. And so he's now a citizen. And because you see, they don't check uh, at that time whether you were already on the database or the citizenship uh, or the population control uh, where you had an ID because that they could easily see the ID and the photo and the fingerprint and the passport doesn't match. So you can see again, there were my emphasis being on uh, the involvement of criminal syndicates. And then people don't even realize that criminal syndicates target the home affairs um, the uh, the permit books, now, now by that I mean, you see the permits are printed in blank at the government printer and then transported with a courier and the poor courier gets hijacked and all those permits are taken off and then because the permits are not printed at head office in uh, by computers, uh, a secure computer, it's all written out well, the guy just writes out a permit, sticks it in your passport, you pay him 25, 40,000, and you think you're safe. But again, it's only people that have got no hope of a legal solution would most probably turn to an illegal solution. 
I've also made the point, which I think bears repetition, that innocent people are also caught up with this because they're frustrated at how long the department is taking and the department is slow and they need to travel and then all kinds of things happen when you do because when you're coming back, they're not letting you pass the airport. But there are safeguards and checks and balances in the Immigrations Act. For example, if you are declared illegal, you must be given notice of that on a prescribed form. And then the prescribed form also builds in certain notices of a review and appeal to the minister. And in the absence of being given the prescribed form, although you're an illegal foreigner, you can challenge that process or lack of process by the Department of Home Affairs in a court of law, having first exhausted internal remedies with the Minister of Home Affairs and then proceeding uh, for a review in the High Court. So you can see there's, there's different aspects to all of these things, especially where you dealt with as an illegal foreigner. You need, you know, I think one of the strengths of South Africa is really its judicial uh, oversight of things and the, and the court's insistence on uh, following protocol. So in this regard, they, I think two weeks ago, there was a Angolan woman who was in, in possession of a fraudulent visa. And then she made representations to the Minister of Home Affairs and the uh, minister basically overlooked her representations. And the court said, no, no, hang on, Mr. Minister. She might be illegal. She might be in possession of fraudulent document, but you had to exercise your discretion independently. You had Hope uh, we didn't uh, lose Ashraf uh, there again, uh, but it seems Give good as a... reasons. Yeah, so you know it's a very high. Yeah, it seems like uh, the gremlins are setting in. Uh, but uh, Ashraf, I hope you're still there. And uh, yes, uh, Ashraf, are talking about uh, uh, a woman uh, from Angola have uh, not having her uh, documentation, and uh, the the minister or the court told the us section uh, the Immigrations Act. Good cause, you can apply for your visa and then you can remain. So even if you've overstayed, you're illegal and you have a reason, you're married, or whatever the situation, if you have a legal basis for here, there are legal solutions. Yes, Ashraf, uh, very eloquent there indeed. And uh, perhaps, uh, you know, as we round up, we have about a few minutes to go. Uh, the You know, you talk about this uh, Dudula group. Uh, what is the legal status of this uh, group? You know, they're targeting uh, undocumented uh, foreigners and uh, so forth. And many say that they have taken the law into their own hands. And it seems as if, uh, you know, the government is uh, turning a blind eye to them. Your thoughts on that, uh, Ashraf? So remember in the days of apartheid, um, we had a thing called kangaroo courts. And some of those judgments had devastating effects. I mean, lives were taken. Operation Duduza as far as I know, is spearheaded by a particular gentleman. He hasn't created like a trust or a company or a social. It's just a gathering of people. Now, this gathering of people, their view is they blame the foreigners for everything. High crime, loss of jobs, uh, indeed, 
some of them saying that the foreigners um, have taken their women. And of course, there is the trading space where they say the foreigners dominate the businesses in the townships and other areas. So the, the legal response to something like that is certain legislation being passed here in Gauteng, where only a South African may operate a spaza shop and only a South African may uh, may do so within a particular uh, entity, or, or uh, like a township, right, an area. So that is the first pushback against foreigners. Now, obviously, they haven't taken into account the vast majority of the foreign shop owners are not citizens, but here on asylum seekers permits, and they are a protected group. So Duduza says, well, we're fed up with all of this. There's no law and order. These guys are taking all of these things. The government hasn't responded adequately. Look at the crime and the murder, etc., etc. And they said, we're going to be the vigilante group now that is going to go around and policing these illegal foreigners. And so there you have the result of Duduza then getting into clashes with EFF, uh, getting into clashes with uh, other communities. I don't know if you recall, Shabbat, maybe four or five years ago in Hillbrow, there were open clashes between South African and foreigners. I don't know if you recall these scenes on TV. Yes, yes. Absolutely. Both sides were armed. You know, so, so on the one hand, you're getting this, and the other hand, you're getting the pushback from the foreigners themselves, it says, no, we're not going to just be treated like this. So you can imagine, this is a recipe for disaster and civil strife, because no man may take the law into his own hands, and no man may act as judge, jury, and executioner. In a way, people affected by uh, or, or have their own xenophobic ideas would welcome Duduza, and those that um, have the contrary view uh, will say, no, what they're doing is wrong. But there is only one law in this country, it's the Constitution, and everyone is governed by it. The principle of law and the principle of uh, having a safe state is that there mustn't be civil strife. So I hope that whole thing is brought under control. Uh, inshallah, Ashraf, and uh, as I said, uh, great to have you back. And, uh, you know, it feels good uh, to be in your uh, pious and sagacious company. Uh, also, uh, your parting words uh, before we let you go. As always, Shafat, um, you know, make dua for people, especially I want to reach out to people that are ill. I've just visited a relative in hospital. It's really, really sad to see how many young people are falling ill. And it's incredible to see how many, you know, suddenly, an onset of so many diseases, liver failure, heart failure, strokes. I mean, it's just incredible. So first and foremost, when you read your Yasin, make one in the name of all the marhumin, those that have passed on, then for the people that are sick, then for our, our, uh, our ummah, and lastly, for your close friends and family and those that you remember, and then obviously for yourself. So please try and make that intention when you're reading your Yasin. Inshallah, Ashraf, you have a blessed evening ahead and Allah keep you now and forever. Inshallah, we'll talk to you soon. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.
Thank you for the Ishazan and inshallah we will continue after that.